listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. For this Thanksgiving weekend, I suppose I might have bumped the lectionary readings and replaced them with texts a bit more directly connected to the harvest or to themes of thankfulness, to thanksgiving. But because we've already departed from the lectionary last week, when we chose texts that kind of connected to our visioning weekend, I really didn't want to skip yet another set of readings in the cycle. Besides, there's so much packed into these verses from the gospel according to Mark, I didn't want to pass up the opportunity to have this text placed before us so we could do a little honest wrestling with the strange good news that it places on our plates. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? Okay, already I need to press the pause button. Why wouldn't he call Jesus good? Particularly in that cultural context, to call a teacher good was an honoring of the teacher, even an expression of your trust in their teaching. Yet Jesus presses the man, why do you call me good? Adding, no one is good but God alone. Now, that little challenge certainly would have thrown the man a bit and puzzled the disciples as well. I'll come back to this little exchange in a few minutes, but for now, just take note. No one is good but God alone. And then he continues, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Press the pause button again. The commandments Jesus lists here are from what are called the second table of the Ten Commandments. The ones that have to do with our relationship to other humans. There's no mention from the first table of idolatry or having no other gods before me. There's no mention of not swearing an oath in the name of God, and no mention of keeping the Sabbath. Not only that, but in this second table that Jesus lists, he doesn't include the final commandment about not coveting your neighbor's property. And, at least in Mark's version of this story, one additional commandment is actually added. I don't know if you heard it as it was being read. You shall not defraud. Now that's not in the Hebrew original. Not that a prohibition against defrauding a neighbor is out of line. Maybe Jesus was almost improvising as he went. No theft, no false witness. That includes fraud and bad business dealings knowing that this person in front of him was a man of wealth. In short, Jesus seems to have an eye already on the commandments that are both the most concrete 
and relevant for a person of means. Well, teacher, I've followed all these since I was a boy, the man replies. And it's hard to know if he's pleased with himself because he's actually been following the commandments that Jesus has just listed, or if he's actually wanting more. Is he pressing for more? Something that he could add to his practice. Maybe there's something more he could do to ensure that he would inherit eternal life. Well, he's about to get the more. Jesus looked at him, Mark writes. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the man heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Jesus loved him, issued the kind of challenge that this man least wanted to hear, yet probably most needed to hear, which left him shocked and grieving as he walked on his way. So invested was this man in his property that it had become an encumbrance, the thing that for the life of him he couldn't release his grip on. We have no idea if the man ever managed to make his way back with his hands open, unencumbered. Mark doesn't tell us. It's worth noting that in the gospel accounts, Jesus meets different people with very different challenges. When he calls the first disciples, it's a challenge to lay down their fishing nets and to follow him, to become fishers of people rather than fishers of fish. When he comes to Levi, the tax collector, it's a simple invitation, follow me. But of course, to follow him also meant that Levi would have to leave his traitorous and rather lucrative practice of collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman government. With Nicodemus, the Pharisee, Jesus says that he needs to die to his airtight theological system, to start his life anew, to be born again. To a garrison man, he'd freed from demonic spiritual possession. A man who actually begged to follow Jesus. Jesus said, no, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy the Lord has shown to you. And to the woman caught in adultery, it's a simple, go your way and sin no more. So no, not everyone receives exactly the same challenge from Jesus because not everyone is encumbered by the same thing. Not everyone is burdened by the same wound. And yet, for all of that, here Jesus does seem quite clear that wealth is a very particular kind of encumbrance. Wealth, you see, can easily create the illusion that I am a self-made person, independent, successful, and at the same time, I'm blessed. Yet, 
wealth so often has a way of never being quite enough. And so it's often the richest people who spend the most time, the most energy on accumulating still more because it's never quite enough. How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, he says to the disciples as they watch that rich man walk away. Hard? What do you mean hard? We'd always believed that the righteous were to flourish. I mean, it's right there in the scriptures. And that aside from the likes of those traitorous tax collectors, riches are a sign of God's blessing. It's easier, Jesus continues, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that really throws the disciples into confusion. Who can be saved, they say to one another. And again, in the background is this idea that wealth is a blessing on righteousness. And it's there in pieces of the Scriptures, but also in the Hebrew Scriptures is a challenge to that assumption. But they hold it. They walk with it. Now, another brief aside... When I was in university, I heard a sermon on this very text in which the preacher very carefully explained, and you may have heard this. I'd be fascinated if other people had heard this version. The preacher very carefully explained that there was a small, low gate in the walls of Jerusalem that was known colloquially as the eye of the needle. And you see, the preacher explained... A camel, in order to go through that low gate, would have to get down on its knees to get through. And so, the preacher emphasized, so it is with a rich person. What a rich person really needs to do is to fall to his or her knees and to enter the kingdom of God in deep humility. Well, at the time, that sounded really reasonable to me. Had anybody else heard that explanation ever? Yeah, okay, there's lots. The biblical scholar Larry Hurtado, among others, by the way, but Larry Hurtado characterizes that take on the text as being both misinformed and, quote, completely fanciful. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. But again, like at the time, it just seemed so reasonable. It made so much sense of what Jesus was saying on your knees, in humility, through that gate. But that's the problem. Jesus isn't intending to be particularly reasonable here with his image of the camel and the needle's eye. For mortals, it is impossible, he says, but not for God. For God, all things are possible, even something so absurd as threading a camel through the eye of a needle. The disciples, they crave reason. They want it to make more obvious sense. And don't we all? Can you hear the tone of Peter's voice as he protests then? Look, we've left everything and followed you. We've done the thing you've just asked of that wealthy man. We've done the right thing, Jesus. 
We deserve to be counted as in, right? Insiders in the coming reign, don't we? To this, Jesus replies, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, I I suppose that at that moment, Peter, trying to skip through that little phrase, and persecutions, Peter may well have thought that giving up his fishing boat was now going to begin to pay some pretty serious dividends a hundredfold. In that circle of the church that proclaims what's called a prosperity gospel, this text is embraced as promising wealth and success for those who believe, you know, give generously and believe because it will come back a hundredfold. The thing is, Peter and the rest of that company of disciples don't wind up with enormous numbers of houses and great fields. They don't end up with big, happy families. They wind up dead. The persecutions part, very much, was part of their experience. So was Jesus simply wrong in talking about abundance, hundredfold coming now in this present age? I find N.T. Wright's reading of this passage to be incredibly insightful. He says, Everything will be upside down and inside out. All things are possible to God. The first will be last and the last first. In particular, though, and this is where Bishop Wright's observation is really helpful, in particular, though, Those who have left family and possessions to follow Jesus will receive things back in the present age. A new and ever-enlarging family of their fellow disciples with homes open to them wherever they go, right? As the Jesus movement unfolds and eventually becomes the early church, there is a family based not on bloodlines, but on this radical kinship called the body of Christ. And there's always a home in which to rest. And there's always a field from which food can be harvested. They just happen to belong to other members of the body. Not exactly what Peter had in mind, I'd venture to say, But once he'd learned to let go of all those old assumptions, assumptions with which he'd been encumbered, that by giving up and following Jesus he was going to get, as soon as he let go of that, it was the place he most needed and wanted to be, persecutions and all. Back briefly to the opening exchange between Jesus and the wealthy man. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, the man had asked. 
which probably meant something like, what sort of good doings are necessary for me to be in the same place of favor which God seems to have you in, Jesus? The man is focused, in other words, on doings, things that he can do or achieve or put into practice in order to be deemed good enough to be part of the kingdom of God. If you hear his question in that way, then Jesus' answer, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone, makes all kinds of sense. The God who can thread a camel through the eye of a needle is the one whose goodness and grace are given as sheer gift. The one needful thing is not to adopt a whole new set of practices, not to do more stuff, not to do good. The one needful thing is to stop kidding yourself that whatever you hold in your hands is the key. Be it the wealth of this man or the theological certainties of Nicodemus or the canny suspicions of of Judaism that that woman, that Samaritan woman at the well confronted Jesus with, they had to all pry their hands open so that they could receive the gift. And the rich man in this story wasn't ready because he had so much. Sure, in opening your hands, things will drop away. Absolutely. It might even hurt to watch some of those treasured things hit the ground. So be it. Because what grace places in your hands is better than all of the silver and all of the gold in all of the world. Come to think of it, maybe this is a really good Thanksgiving text after all. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.